Welcome to Pantisocracy, and this is your host, Ms. Panty Bliss. Well, welcome to my little soiree of interesting people doing fabulous things. We like to say that Pantisocracy is a bit like your ideal dinner party. You've got a beautiful host, intriguing guests, and today is no exception. First up, we have a Donegal woman who has an angelic voice. She's an actor, a voice coach, and one-third of the group The Evertides. Please welcome Ruth McGill. <laughs> Next to Ruth is a man from Arigna, whose musings on life provoke and entertain. It's writer Michael Harding. Then we have a Kerry woman whose plays and performances open windows on Irish society. Please welcome Amy Conroy. <laughs> Beside Amy is a Roscommon hunk. He's a star, was a star GAA player and then became an aerial sex symbol and he's a man who's well used to my nonsense because we have shared backstages and dressing rooms often. Please welcome Ronan Brady. And finally, we have a young Dublin poet who packs a powerful and often political punch in her work. Please welcome Jessica Trainer. Anyway, but first, before we get on to our interesting guest, I get to uh, take the floor because, after all, the show has my name in the title in what we call the Panty Monologues. I was a boarding school boy. I spent my secondary school years with 500 other boys under the watchful eyes of Franciscan friars. Boarding school is Darwinism in action, survival of the fittest. The strong survive and thrive while the weak are cruelly crushed. And traits unhelpful to survival, like fatness or Dungeons and Dragons, or an interest in an insufficiently heterosexual pop star, are bred out of the gene pool through relentless mocking. Which should have bode ill for me with my interest in art, gay, my lack of interest in field sports, gay and weird, and my well-worn cassette of Wham's first album. And yet, boarding school suited me. I was the kind of confident, mouthy kid who got on fine with the rowdy football types, but with enough geeky qualities to also get on with the nerds. But some boys simply weren't the right personality type for boarding school and should never have been there. Boarding school is like prison, in that even though the inmates are constantly supervised, they develop their own crude society with its own code under the noses of the guards. And when the inmates are 500 teenage boys away from Mammy for the very first time, that code can be sometimes brutal and cruel. Some boys were simply cripplingly homesick and would never grow out of it. They walked around the school with slumped shoulders and drawn faces, and at night you'd sometimes hear the lonely sound of their blanket-muffled sobs. Others made the mistake of betraying a weakness, of being fat, or thin, or ginger, or awkward, or buck-toothed, or curly-haired, or big-lipped, or funny-named, or green-eyed, or any other seemingly arbitrary thing the pack decided to turn against. And the pack would be relentless. There were boys who went through years of torture, and leaving them there to endure it was stupid and cruel. I suppose it's possible that some of them now look back and think it made them stronger people, but I doubt it. But for me, boarding school was bearable. It quite suited me. I was always independent and self-contained, and I never had a single moment of homesickness. I was a lazy and poorly organized student, but I was naturally book smart, so I coasted along with reasonable grades without much effort. I got on with pupils and staff, and although I was often in trouble, I was simply testing the boundaries of my limited freedoms. For the school, any hint of sexuality of any sort was cause for alarm. 
The Franciscans were like Carrie's mum, aware of the awesome, <laughs> unpredictable power of burgeoning teen sexuality and terrified that if even a little escaped, it could run amok, becoming more and more powerful and impossible to control till eventually it destroyed the school Debs and killed John Travolta. <laughs> the main fear, of course, was homosexuality, not only because homosexuality was a horrible crime against God and nature, but because unlike heterosex, homosex was an actual, real, live possibility. After all, here were 500 hormone adult boys and not a pair of X chromosomes as far as the eye could see. <laughs> the school's main strategy in the war against homosex was never allowing any privacy of any kind, and so 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we were surrounded by other boys or supervised by adults and usually both. But in truth, there was little to worry about. In those pre-internet days, we knew very little about sex beyond the basic mechanics, and we weren't even all that sure about those. <laughs> and yet, even in this repressed, sexually innocent atmosphere, everyone knew what went on in Father Ronald's office. There were a couple of priests or brothers who had reputations for being a bit too touchy-feely, but for the most part, it was fairly benign, lonely, unmarried men who enjoyed a hug as a fairly rare moment of human contact. But Father Ronald was different. Father Ronald was a balding, grey-haired, chubby man in his 50s with thick-rimmed glasses who, among other things, was the school bursar. If you needed money, you'd go to his office and plead your case, and he would debit your account in a little notebook. And bizarrely, he was also the school sex education teacher. Every boy in the school was occasionally called to Father Ronald's office for the talk. His voice would come over the tannoy system during study, and as the named boy got up from his desk and made his way out of the study hall, 200 boys would snigger and make wet kissing sounds while the friar on study monitor duty glared down at us till silence was restored. And after study, when the boy was back, we'd gather around him and ask him if Father Ronald had touched him, and if he did, what he had done, and we would laugh about it and, because we didn't know what else we were supposed to do. For me and my friends, Father Ronald was little more than a creepy unpleasantness. And for the most part, mouthy, confident me, the kind of boy who might talk too much, I escaped unscathed from my visits to Father Ronald's office. Other boys were not so lucky. We all knew that Father Ronald paid particular attention to certain boys, but the details were vague. Those boys didn't laugh and joke about it, and some innate sense in us told us not to ask. Once, one of the quietest, most naive boys who wore iron slacks every day and had no real friends and spoke to his mother on the phone every evening came back into the study hall after a visit to Father Ronald's office and, as usual, we all started to make wet kissing sounds until we realized that the boy was sobbing, crying, and the cacophony of stupid sounds subsided till all that was left was a confused and embarrassed silence punctuated by a lonely boy's stifled sobs. Everyone knew about Father Ronald. Everyone saw the elephant in the corner, and everyone silently agreed it was easier all round if we didn't notice it. <laughs> Amy, I want to come to you first, because your work, in some ways, is about sort of maybe revealing these things that we've chosen not to see before. 
I'm thinking of you know, the two shows you're most well known for, I Heart Alice Heart Eyes, about two middle-aged women who unexpectedly fall in love with each other in a supermarket. And then your last one is a, is a transgender story, which is, again is something that until recent years we never really spoke about or even knew about. Tell us a little about that. Uh, well, I suppose I'm always fascinated, again, about the things that we don't talk about or the things yeah. that we choose not to see mm. or we skirt around it. And I guess I'm always compelled to rip a little hole in the fabric that we, we've mm. seen the glisten of light behind it and expose what it is. And sometimes that's very beautiful, sometimes that can be dark, but it's always deeply human. And mm. I find, you know, thematically, particularly about the Alices, and Look Just Kissed You Hello. Yeah, Look, people look Just might, Kissed You Hello is the transgender story. Yeah, yeah, is a story about Mark, who used to be Laura. A lot of people thematically kind of go, oh God, I don't know, you know, when you bring them around the country or when yeah. you bring them to other countries or whatever. And at the heart of these stories are deeply human stories. I've had people come up after I Heart Alice Heart Eye saying, I didn't know if I wanted to come and my wife brought me and, and I saw myself and, you know, and, and that was my life. And I'm kind of going, yeah, of course it was because yeah. we're human beings, you know. Well, and of course, the other thing is that you tell these stories with great humour, mm. even if sometimes they're looking at darker things. And Well, that's what we do, isn't yeah. it? I mean, that's how we look at anything. I mean, even your monologue, it was very funny and then we go dark and, and because that's the reality yeah. of it. But when you're asking an audience to come in, you want them to want to be there and willingly go with you. I always think when you write a play or when you make a play that you must cast your audience in it and we all go on the journey together and we all want to go on the journey even if it's sometimes a bit weird or hard or difficult. That's what makes it satisfying for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, you of course, you're well known for elucidating darker themes sometimes with Mm. great humour. I suppose the one that I've worked on is depression. Yeah. I work fierce hard at being depressed. (laughs) And uh, I'm successful most of the time. But uh, my work started really with a kind of a fairly angry attitude, both to the Troubles in the North, Mm -hmm. about which I wrote one book and three plays in the Abbey, and to clerical abuse. Yeah. Way back in 89, I wrote a play called Unapuka, and it was about a cleric who destroys a young woman. And then I wrote a play called Misogynist, which kind of showed the endemic nature of misogyny within the Christian Judea tradition. And you're really ahead of your time. There, was, there yeah. in both issues. You yeah. were years ahead of the rest of yeah, us. Yeah, but, but it, 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 these things pass. Mm. And it's like there's a one wave and nobody hears it. But you know that there will be another wave. And I'm in the kind of latter generation, if you know what I mean. I'm the old uncle in the corner. (laughs) Enjoying the fact that there's a wave now that everybody's conscious of and everybody's listening to in relation to sexuality and tolerance Mm. and openness and women and all the rest of it. So... In the meantime, I just sit in the corner being depressed and writing about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, but depression is another thing that, you know, 20 years ago we didn't really talk about it or didn't know how yeah, to talk yeah, yeah, about it. Yeah, and yeah. we have gotten better at that. We have, yeah. And, like, one of the great things has been psychotherapy and the prevalence of psychotherapy and the fact that if there's anybody out there listening at this moment who's really feeling the need for support emotionally, mm. there are phone numbers, there are therapists, there's all sorts of wonderful community organisations. Yeah. And therapy gives people a language that we didn't have, which is wonderful. I mean, yeah. I go to therapy in sessions. I might do three months and then I wouldn't be there for two years. But, like, it's, it's a wonderful indulgence almost. Yeah. And it's not something you do because you're ill. It's something you do, like going to the GP, yeah. to maintain your mental health. Yeah. You do it now for positive reasons so that you can kind of see danger signs in yourself 
like maybe you haven't spoken to anybody for three weeks. Yeah. You're getting too emotionally attached to the cat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about it to your therapist and it'll kind of bounce back at you and you'll realise, yeah, I'm not really well, am I? <laughs> you know, when we're putting these shows together, you know, we're thinking the sort of themes and stuff. And, um, and one of the other things we talked a lot about here is the idea of what it is to be an Irish man. Mm. And, and Roan and Michael talks about it a lot in his work, what it is to be an Irish man. And, and in a way, you're, you're almost illustrative. Because you, of course... You're from Roscommon. You're a GA star on, on the county team. I mean, and your family would have been very traditional men's men and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in your monologue at the start, if something wasn't cool, it was gay. So it was mm. like, well, I can't do that because I'm going to be excluded from the pack. <laughs> so you avoided these things, which, yeah, very, very traditional in, in where I came from as opposed to where I am now or where I was launched into, I suppose, with the help of yourself and other people within the show that was riot and learned an awful lot there. So you were the GAA county team player and all that, and then you, were, you had an injury. Mm-hmm. And in an effort to sort of work your way out of that injury, you took up aerial... Aerial acrobatics and that, yeah. yeah I suppose I went about trying to heal the body as opposed to playing inter-county football. It's all about getting better and it's not necessarily about doing what's best for your body. So acrobatics was trying to to regenerate myself in a sense. Mm. And within that became the creative aspect and getting into saying something with your art, I suppose, yeah. in a sense. And then in order to actually say something about something, you had to be fairly comfortable about that topic or have explored that topic, mm. at least in some sense, with yourself before you could actually say it in any ways truthfully. Yeah. And then I got involved with This Is Pop Baby and I remember Jenny Jennings she wanted me to be a gender-fluid individual. <laughs> first, I had to look that up. And then, second, I goes... To be an individual or gender-fluid? It's a matter of interest, gender-fluid. <laughs> so, um, this is Pop Baby's production company, and um, they have a show called Riot that I'm in, and they were looking for an aerial act, and they wanted, like, a sexy, hunky guy, and they found you. And the first time I met you was we were doing a photo shoot for this show, and... You know, to be blunt about it, it was the gayest thing ever. I mean, we were all in, you know, little bits of lycra, and I was in drag, and, uh-huh. you know, and you were being handed this tiny little Speedo to wear by a costume designer who's the gayest thing in the world. Yes. Um, I love you, James. And, um, um, and, and, of course, at the time, I just thought you were just any other performer, and so this was all normal to you, but, but it wasn't at all. No. I, uh, yeah. I, I walked out of the room at one stage pretending to be on the phone, and I nearly got in the car. I nearly left. Someone had asked me for all my, my measurements. You know, I'm like, I'm going to get in a proper outfit. And I land in and James hands me these, they were size small duns, like a pair of Speedos. And I'm like, Jesus. I spent time getting measurements I had never taken on my body before. And then they hand me these things. I'm like, Jesus Christ of Almighty. And Panty's like looking me up and down. And I'm like, God Almighty, what, what's going on here? But yeah, I very much had to have a conversation with myself. I'm like, you know, if you're comfortable with who you are and what you're doing, like this shouldn't be a problem. I tend to put myself in uncomfortable situations in order to, to try and grow in a sense. And if it hasn't happened yet where I haven't, so thank God. Um, well, what's interesting to me about that is that so you were put into this show and they designed this very sort of sexy act for you to do. You're up in the air and you're you know, in a strong man suit. Yeah. And it's, a, it's this kind of a jokey striptease thing. Yeah. And it's deeply Irish because you come out in a Roscommon jersey and all that. And I, and I think they've made you into a, an object of desire in, in a way. You know, that women have to feel like a lot. Yeah. I experienced a version of that Mm. after the shows when you'd go to the pubs and the clubs or whatever and you'd be hanging out and next thing you'd be getting grabbed and stroked on the arm and kind of, and because you've kind of showed yourself off in a show in a sense, I guess people feel like they have more ownership of you and you're like, yeah, I don't even know who you are. Like, what are you, 
what are you doing? And all of a sudden, I was getting bombarded by this stuff. And from women or men? Or from both? men. It was, mostly, it was mostly men. And bigger, stronger, more physical. And you started to realize, oh, Jesus, that shouldn't make a difference. But it, it does make a difference mm. when somebody's sort of approaching in this manner. And it, was, it wasn't nice. So that, that was a major, yeah. a major eye-opening experience there. But oh, you, you became very comfortable with us nuts, and we've shared yeah. many a, a dressing room at this stage. Um, now, now, Ruth, you know, you, Donegal, <laughs> deeply Nothing traditional more to say. sort of family. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yes and no. I mean, Catholic, is that, that's a very traditional thing to be in Ireland. And I just felt I had a very Donegal experience of childhood. You know, we'd come up to Dublin and I was like, whoa, what is this world? Paved streets everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, whereas I'm just used to grass and, you know, the rocks at the back and things like that. But actually very close family and that very uh, good at talking to one another and felt very loved. And I had my place in the family as the, the baby. Your grandfather was a musician as well? He was a singer, yeah. He was a beautiful singer, actually. It's really sad. You know, these re revelations that you hear of your family. And my grandfather had actually been approached by John McCormick's agent or manager, and he wanted to bring him up to Dublin to train him because he'd heard, heard his voice and thought this is a really, really good voice. But his father said, if you do that, you're not in the family, you know. So he had a very sad life. And not because just of that, but you look at those things and you go, God, that's a really sad, sad thing yeah. to learn about the man that I knew. And do you think that had any influence on you training to be an opera singer? The thing about me being an, a singer, for full stop, like the fact that I had a voice was like, this is not good news because I will now be seen as like, oh, she thinks she's great or, you know, she must think she's better than us. And no one ever, ever said that. Actually, people were really like, Go on, sing. Mm. I mean, I don't know. My mum's like, I think you can really sing. I think we need to train your voice. And I was like, okay. Uh, and suddenly I was But I think it's doing... a bit like Ronan sort of putting himself on display in a way. That traditionally we were more comfortable with women putting themselves on display. Yeah, I have always felt though that growing up like in a place where GAA mm. was pretty much the centre, that and the church, you know, they went hand in hand. Yeah. But I always felt that the light went up towards these GAA players. Live, you know, be strong. Mm. And... Um, you know, make the sandwiches then in the background. Now, Jessica, you are Dublin born and bred. I am indeed. And your grandmother, talk to us a little about her. Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting uh, listening to, to what Ruth was saying about this notion about the, the many generations of frustrated artists in Ireland. Now, it's still bloody hard, but it's much easier to be an artist now than it would have been for previous generations. And my grandmother, who was kind of a big influence on me, would have had seven children and kind of raised them all through, you know, through the 40s, 50s, 60s. But she was, I think, the first woman in Ireland to graduate from Central as a speech and drama teacher in London. Yeah. And she would have done this after the kids were old enough to look after each other, which was kind of unheard of. Mm. I mean, she was one of those generations who had studied really hard to get into the civil service and been there for about 25 minutes and then got married and been booted out the door. And she went back and studied as a speech and drama teacher and then spent a lot of time teaching in inner city schools. Mm. So I'll often meet people of a kind of a, of a younger generation, of my mum's generation, who would remember her from teaching them maybe in somewhere like Sing Street or yeah. something like that. But that was her outlet for her kind of artistic drive. But yeah. even that was not as much as she wanted to achieve. And then, you know, my mum, who is an actor now, 
would have been a ballet dancer when she was young, won a scholarship to the Royal Ballet that her parents could not afford to send her to London. You know, even though the fees were paid, sending a child to London. So, you know, that had to be put on hold and she didn't go back to train as an actor until she was probably in her early 40s. And she has a career now. But again, you just look at all of these generations and lives that were put on hold, kind of much like Ruth's granddad or or kind of artistic desires that were never fulfilled because it kind of wasn't the done thing. You know, kind of my my mum growing up uh, in Walkinstown in the in the 50s and 60s, you know, somebody being sent off to the Royal Ballet, you know, who do you think you are? Was kind of the attitude. And and so were you set from early on on being a poet or something you had to sort of come to? Absolutely. You know, I when I was a kid, we were kind of like the Von Trapp family. There were a lot of frustrated artistic But, you know, there were kind of seven children and they all sang, you know, so my aunts and uncles were all very musical. So I would be wheeled out as a cute little eight year old to sing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, which I hated more than anything. (laughs) So when I was about seven or eight, I rebelled and wrote this really miserable poem about a man coming back to a deserted house and all of his family have died is the implication. And he drops a suitcase on the floor. And one Christmas party, I was kind of wheeled out to do my little party piece. And I read this poem and I was never asked to perform again. And it was great. of you from the Adams <laughs> yeah, family. Exactly. Um, I was like, that, that's put a stop to that now. <laughs> um, well, of course, something you have in common with Amy here is that you're not only right, but you're also a performer, and they're going to do a poem for us, and um, it's about the Arcane Boys Band, which, of course, now, when I was growing up, I would only see the Arcane, you know, every, you know, Crow Park, and they'd come out, and I saw these, you know, boys in fancy little outfits, and, you know, I, yeah, I thought that looks like fun. You know, I, it was many years later when I was a fully grown adult when I discovered a little about the history of the Artane Boys Band. And, and I almost felt guilty for not knowing anything about them. Yeah, I was having a discussion with my dad who, you know, would have grown up in Finglas in the 1950s and 60s. You know, we were having one of those discussions about that question that we all ask ourselves about how do people deal with the fact that this was going on under their noses? And what did people know and what did people talk about in terms of places like Artane Industrial Mm. School? And I was kind of asking him about that and he was saying, well, you know, look, we we have this kind of almost Victorian sense of morality. It's like it was the bad kids who ended up there Mm. and it was a threat, you know, if you don't behave yourself, I'll send you to Artane. If you don't do your homework, you'll be sent to Artane. But again, he said that the only time that he'd ever see them was during the kind of halftime at Croke Park. And there was something kind of glamorous about the air of criminality almost, you know, (laughs) these dangerous boys. But he said that he also would feel this sense of sadness for them, that they'd be let out for this half hour. And then you'd go back and they'd be sent back and you wouldn't see them, you know. And I asked him, did did you know anyone who was sent to Artane? And he said, yeah, there was one boy down the road in Fingus who was sent to Artane. But then his, you know, when he was sent off, his mother was like, oh, he wasn't right. Do you know what I mean? So it was almost like a kind of an outlet for problem kids. But in the way that we, you know, I mentioned earlier about these sort of elephants in the corner of the room. I mean, they weren't just in the corner of the room. They were on our TV screens and they were yeah. you know, blowing, you know, making noise. And, yeah, and, and yeah. yet we refused to really see them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's uh, hear the poem. Yeah. The Artane Band. Da used to swing me over the turnstile to see the Dublin matches. I remember the sight of my own legs dangling. I'd never see much of the game. What's left is the smell of men their coats steaming rain and beer, being hoisted by my ribs above the crowd, the pitch spread out green and vast, the distance of it. And every half-time the band playing on the field, their music rising and falling with the seaweed stink that rushed in from the bay, 
There's the boys, Da would say, and he'd wag his finger in a warning that told me these matchstick boys made music because they were outlaws, each cymbal clash a cry of mea culpa, and I imagined myself out there with them in this rainy coliseum with my da as emperor giving the thumbs down, shaking his head for the loss of his son to that criminal gang, the bold boys of the Artane band. One of the things you know, that, Michael, I want to come to you about is um, you have a convoluted history when it comes to faith. Because you were going to be a priest and... Well, I started off as a social worker. Mm-hmm. I had a very happy relationship with a, an American woman when I was at college. I went to Sligo to be a social worker and then found that was boring. <laughs> Sligo or social work? <laughs> <laughs> Both. <laughs> but at the time... Priests would get shot. There mm-hmm. were nuns in El Salvador getting shot. There was 40,000 people in El Salvador killed by American helicopters at the time. Bishop Romero in El Salvador was killed. And the reason for that was that liberation theology was the cutting edge of where the church was going. Yeah. And that was very clear to everybody. There was a presumption that there would be women priests and married priests by, you know, next Christmas. Yeah. And so it, it seemed more exciting than anything mm. to be part of something where there was a preferential option for the poor and where you'd develop community. Yeah. And that all changed in 1979 when the Polish man became Pope. Yeah. And the bus reversed into the 19th century. <laughs> and people like me realised, we've got to get off this thing <laughs> quick. So that's my checkered history. I was ordained a priest. Oh, you were, yeah. I was, and I never left it. Why would I? Because I didn't change. Yeah. They did. Yeah. You know, I didn't lose my faith or something. But mm. I went on then and uh, found myself doing kind of Buddhist practice simply because, again, I thought I'd, I needed a bit of psychotherapy. And being an artist at the time, I couldn't afford it. And I was married to an artist. And as a thing, you should never, if you're an artist, marry another fucking artist. It's a real mistake. Marry a teacher or a dad or somebody. <laughs> Don't marry. Don't marry another one. You're totally stuck in poverty. <laughs> uh, so there we were in Leitrim, Arigna, and uh, there was a Tibetan Lama, very high-ranking friend of the Dalai Lama, living 20 miles away. And I thought, well, you know, I had studied enough in theology to know that Buddhism is not a revealed religion. Mm. That's where it's fundamentally different. So it is a psychotherapy. Yeah. One time somebody asked the Dalai Lama, you know, what do you think of modern psychiatry? And he said, it's very good, but it's in its infancy. <laughs> but uh, so I, I said, well, this is a good therapy system and uh, it'd be cheaper because I wouldn't have to pay 60 euros an hour for it. <laughs> so I went over there for a day to see what they were at. And I remember sitting down to meditate and they were teaching us, there was a woman teaching us how to meditate, you know. And she'd say, take a, take a pint on the end of your nose and just focus on it. Like she meant on the ground, on the end of your nose. <laughs> I thought she meant on the end of your nose. And I went home and I was sitting there cross-eyed for a couple of weeks. I'm not joking. I was getting pains in my head. And I went back to her and I said it one stage, I said, she said, how's it going? How's the meditation going at home, Michael? And I said, good, I get pains in my head. <laughs> and she said, oh, that's probably a good sign. <laughs> I was clearing stuff, you know? So uh, eventually I realised that I've been telling stories and writing poetry since I was 16 and really, that's my truth. Mm. I'm a storyteller. And I feel that underneath every story, there's another story. Yeah. And in between the stories, sometimes you find a serenity. And if Buddha gets you there, Jesus gets you there, mm. or dogmatic atheism or George Bernard Shaw, whoever the feck you like, 
Just mm. be in the present moment yep. and try and be calm. That's what I believe in, okay? Well, because some people might accuse you of being a cherry picker in a way. You take what you want from different... Yeah, I really think that's a good thing to be now. Mm. We have spent too long clobbering each other over the head based on my religion is right and your religion is wrong or even my Christianity is right and your Christianity is wrong. Mm. Like, we need to understand that we live in a world as Dawkins would have it. We live in a world which is real and scientific and there's quantum particles floating all around the place and there is no other place other than this universe. Mm. This universe is here, that's it. Get used to it, right? If you accept that and let go of the medieval absolutist notion of religion, which you'll get in Islam, you'll get in Christianity, you'll get in any religion, where it's kind of like the conceptual idea of the religion is driving the reality. Mm. And the reality is in some way contingent on these ideas. This is a really, really old, old idea. And I think that gradually cultures are coming out of that and realising that religion is a relative disposition that may allow you to live healthy in the world. In other words, it's another psychotherapy. So, yeah, I, I cherry pick, of course, and everybody yeah. should. Well, you know, I'm one of those people that I've never found myself drawn to that spirituality in that sort sure. of way. And I would be the kind of person who would be a little dismissive now, Ruth, of what we would call the airy-fairy yoga stuff. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And so, but you, on the other hand, get a lot from that. I do. I get a lot from Buddhism, actually. Yeah. I listen to a lot of uh, podcasts. I'm like, yeah, I've trained to be a yoga teacher. But I guess I'm looking for the simplicity more and more mm. in yoga in terms of like, why am I doing it? It's to just breathe. Like, yeah. I, I actually connected in with my singing teaching a mm. lot now. And when you go back to Donegal and you talk about this stuff, do they all roll their eyes? I just don't talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, speaking of singing, Ruth, you're going to sing for us. I am going um, to sing. So, Ruth McGill, what are you going to sing for I'm us? going to sing a song called See You. It's one that I wrote with the Evertides. And it is, it's kind of about living in your head and having a really brilliant fantasy life and then mm. when it comes to reality you know that seems to be the theme of a lot of my songs <laughs> <laughs> I need to deal with that okay you've got to see me every morning to the evening every hour making eyes at you You've got to have noticed every time I walk with purpose My body's heading straight for you And if seeing ain't believing to you dear, I don't know what next I'll do Oh, I've got a notion There's no reason for a hoping For a sign of devotion from you I have no clue how to woo or be wooed So I best be foolproof hardy when I and I'm hedging bets on losing every scrap of cool I've stored up just for you. Oh, I, I keep thinking the smoke will clear up soon and you'll see. I keep thinking I'm all dressed up for nobody but me. I keep thinking I'm unable and unstable around you. Oh, you got me good from blessed head to foot a poison chalice. I ran with it And to curb any feeling I might ever need some healing I trained myself to act real tough Now there's a heavy thought that's leading And creeping in to try to tell me to stop Ooh. Mm. Oh, 
Is a voice coach, and she you know, says this thing that all, lots of people, you know, voice coaches say, oh, anybody can sing, everybody can sing. And, and I understand what you're saying, but it's also <laughs> bullshit. And, 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 and when I see somebody like you just stand up and do that, I get very envious of that, you know. Ability. And she can do yoga, rage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, Amy, you're a Kerry woman. I am. And, um, and we've been talking a little bit about, you know, what it means to be an Irish man or an Irish woman and the sort of boxes that are sort of imposed on you. But you're also a gay woman. And, um, is the uh, hair? Yeah, yeah. the hair. Told you. <laughs> it was the short hair that gave it away. And, and I've heard you talk before a little bit about um, coming to Dublin first and, and finding the queers and what that well, what that meant to you or how did it? Oh, it was, I mean, it was massive. In fairness, I, I mean, th- none of this would be new information to to any queer person yeah. listening to this. But when you grow up queer in a small town, you feel like an absolute alien, and it's misery actually. And I felt like I spent the first 18 years of your life watching everybody else live their life. Mm. And it does make you quite astute. Mm. And you are watching and you're learning and you, you understand how things work. But you're very much on the outside of any reality at mm. all. For- Which is pretty grim, <laughs> ultimately, when you think about it. So when I came up to Dublin, up to Dublin, when I came up to Dublin, yeah. when I packed my sandwiches and came up to Dublin, the train, it was amazing. I mean, it was fantastic. But it's also really lonely because you think, fuck, I'm going to go to Dublin and it's all going to be changed. And my mother was kind of saying to me, what are you going to do when you leave school, Amy? I said, I'm going, I'm going to study acting. I'm going to Dublin. And she went, well, what happens if you're not? I said, I'm going to Dublin anyway. I don't care. I'm leaving immediately, my poor mother. But uh, I kind of came up thinking, oh, this is going to rock now. It's all go- Everything's going to slot into place. And then you're kind of in Dublin and you've got 30 quid in your pocket going, oh, this is pretty grim too. Mm. <laughs> and this is kind of grim too. Uh, so you have to, t- you have to find your, your, your way in the yeah. world, you know what I mean? And ultimately, like, you know, 
I think when you come out first, you have all these friends, and then you realize, oh my god, they're all assholes. Uh, they're only my friends. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, I really don't like this person. And I slept with her. Oh, she did. Oh, I did it again. Uh, so then you kind of start to call all those people from your life, and then yeah. you're left with good people and uh, some good people. <laughs> no, then you're left with good people. Uh, but it's a process. Like everything just just doesn't go boom deadly. Like, yeah, you know, like of it's course. a massive process. But it's something that I think gay people talk about a lot. You're leaving the small town, and and and, and in a way we think of it as our sort of unique experience, you know, like, but actually, straight it's people our, do it no, too. No, no, I'm, I'm not sharing it. Not like Rowan, you're from a your small town. I'm not sharing it with you, Rowan. You're the G. It's <laughs> muscles. You can do aerialist stuff. Back off. Back off. It's my story. But even Ronan, like every, like every lesbian, had to, um, you, know, you know, leave his small town background, you know, to sort of grow or, or explore or, or be more in a way. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, with what Ruth said, you know, there's like, you think people are saying you can't do this, whereas like mm. nobody's ever actually said it. And you build up these things in, in yeah. your head and maybe it's what you would say to somebody else. You know, it's like our own voice or there's, there's an Irish kind of begrudgery and also kind of running ourselves down. Like, what would you be at going mm. off to ballet school? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. where would you be going? <laughs> it's like speaking out about anything. You know, you build up this thing in your head that like, oh, they're not going to understand. Mm. They're going to hate me. They think I'm awful. And when you eventually do say something or do something, people are kind of like, huh, yeah. right. Then you're like, is that it? <laughs> you know, it's like an anticlimax, and uh, it's almost unfair. You robbed me of the drama or something. But it's, I think we don't give ourselves credit enough that other people are going to understand as much as as much as they will. You know. But because in one way, yours, you know, original story, if you want to call it that, could not have been more straight boy Irish. Yeah. Like totally. not only were you doing the the Gaelic football, but you were also you were going to be a teacher. You were teaching engineering. Yeah, and it's kind of what you're taught. You're told, in a sense, you have to grow up, you have to get a good job, you have to go mm. to college and you have to get a good pensionable job or whatever, and then you're kind of preparing for death or something. I don't know what the hell it is. <laughs> you know, it's like you get there and you're like, damn, I didn't do anything. I just played, played it safe. But then I'm competitive, so it's also you kind of see the world that's in front of you and you go, well, how do I do the best within what, yeah. what I can see? But then down the country, there's only a certain amount of safe jobs. You know, there's only so many carpenters in the village. And kind of like the civil service was always the thing or a teacher or a guard or whatever, all those things are there. And also I came from a farming background and all my uncles and aunties, so kind of, they were all in that same area. So you kind of grew up and yeah. you'd done what you could to stay at home, I suppose. And how did they all react when... They call in to see your mother and she says, oh, he's out in the shed, you know, hanging out at the ceiling in a, you know, in a speedo. <laughs> or whatever, you know. Like, um. uh, that, it didn't really happen so much as at home, you know. It, uh, <laughs> <laughs> All I can picture is you in the silks out in like some shitty shed. Wearing the speedo to Christmas dinner. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't really my decision to kind of come up with an act like that and... I guess to be that that figure, you know, if I was to go up there and take myself serious in that position, it, like you, I couldn't do it, yeah, because it's a mockery of that kind of image or that figure. Well, then it's okay because it's, it's not really you, you know. But coming this way has helped me grow an awful lot more as a person. If I was still doing that same thing, I don't think I'd have I'd have learned as much or, or taught as much about other people in mm. a sense or other other lifestyles, different. Types of things, so... No, well, you've been a wonderful addition to my life, Ronan. So, um, now, Amy, you're going to do uh, something for us. I am. Do you want to tell us a little about it? Yeah. This is a little piece from a play, my most recent play. It's called Luck Just Kissed You Hello. And it's a play about a character called Mark, who is a trans man. That's not what the play is about. The play is about, I guess, his relationship with his father 
and the father's dying and Mark has come home and they're debating whether or not to donate the father's organs. But really this piece is about the making of a man, actually, and I suppose masculinity or masculinities. And uh, this little section, Mark has asked very simply, after all the argy is over, explain it to me. And this is what he says. <clears throat> My skin didn't fit. I'd watch the boys swimming during the summer holidays. They'd have their tops off, changing in a group, uh, a pack. I'd stare at their perfect bodies, looking for the seams. They'd laugh and they'd spit and they didn't give a fuck. No shame. And the girls loved them. And even when the boys pushed them in in all their clothes and they had to cycle home sopping wet and light to their mothers, it was funny. And they'd still shift them behind the boots before they left. Jumping into the always cold water and screaming about their balls like their life depended on it. And that was funny too. They were free. Liberated from the horrible tugs that clung to my ugly body and rode up my fat arse every time I waded in. The sly eyes that the girls rolled in my direction, singling me out as somehow different. And they'd cling a little tighter to their towels in case I saw anything. Like I was even looking. <laughs> I was looking at the boys. They didn't notice me. Neither one thing nor the other. I wouldn't have noticed me either. My skin didn't fit, theirs did. Standing there with their tops off, like gods. They made it look so easy. I knew I should have been one of them, that I was one of them. I'm a man. Thanks, Amy. Uh, now, uh, Jessica, you have joined uh, Ruth in that you became a mother. I'm delighted by how well Ruth looks with 11 years of experience. <laughs> that's, the, that's the yoga, Jessica. They make that's you the younger. Oh, and, and by the way, the child name's Abby. Yes. And you used to work in the Abbey. I know, it's the most embarrassing Freudian slip that's ever <laughs> happened. I worked in the Abbey for 10 years and I just finished up working there at the beginning of this year and then called my child Abigail. Abby. Um, yeah, but it's nice. It's, it's a nice thing. It's um, nice. Your motherhood is one of those things that we impose on women. So does it change how you view your womanhood in a way? Yes and no. I mean, it's been the most amazing process. You know, mm. I think you learn a lot about your own body and what the body can do. But, you know, tough, really hard as well and yeah. terrifying. You know, I mean, I have the most beautiful, healthy little baby girl in the world. And yet I, there's something new to worry about every minute because there's something new every minute, yeah. especially in these first weeks. You know, she's an entirely different <clears throat> person day to day. I mean, one of the things that I always think about pregnancy and, and it sort of ties in a little bit with what Ronan was saying about sort of becoming an object. And we think of that as sort of about like a sort of sexual objects in, in some ways. Yeah, but women yeah. actually, like when they're pregnant, they become like public objects. People are always like, you're wanting to touch their belly and yeah, uh, you know yeah. or they're tut-tutting because they see them drinking a glass of wine or you know people feel that you're almost 
public property in a, in a way, which I don't know if that would really annoy me or was it something I would be cool with? I don't know. I'm quite lucky because I don't really give off the touch me vibe, you know? <laughs> I kind of, I got a force field around me. But I did have one weird experience when I was actually um, legging it up Talbot Street to get to the Rotunda just for a checkup, And a man kind of stopped me. And, you know, it's Talbot Street. If a stranger stops you, you know, you're yeah. not really kind of wanting the chats with kind of strangers <laughs> on Talbot Street. I was clearly in a rush. I mean, I was power walking as much as an eight and a half months pregnant woman mm. can power walk up, up Talbot Street, power waddling. You know, he was like, oh, just hang on a second. And I kind of went, no, I'm sorry, I'm kind of in a rush. And he said, no, 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 you'll thank me. And then I kind of stopped and he said, when you're in labour and the contractions are getting really bad, get your partner to push on your on your coccyx mm-hmm. and that'll relieve the pain. You'll thank me. And you know what I did? I politely thanked him. Oh, thank you. I said, and on I walked. And I was really annoyed with myself afterwards for not that just going, creepy. go, it was creepy. And, and then you have the, this weird moment of feeling, you know, I, oh, he was probably trying to be nice. And then you think, well, oh, you're actually, such a woman. Such a woman. Yeah, you're such like, yeah. a woman. You know, this man has invaded my per- personal space and put his hand on my back and told me what I should do when I'm giving birth. From his many experiences of having <laughs> his many babies. <laughs> you know, and he's like just singled out some random pregnant woman on the street <laughs> to impart this advice. And yet there's a voice in my head going, oh, he meant well. I ended up in a kind of a really confused rage with myself for about three hours afterwards, you know, with these, all these conflicting feelings about it. But yeah, it's weird. I was on Thomas Street only a couple of weeks ago and I was looking to see if a shop was open across the road, it was dark, and uh, this guy walked past me and goes, smile! And I thought oh. I knew him and I looked at him and smiled thinking that he was my a pal because no one else, mm. only somebody who yeah. knows you would say that as a joke, knowing you yeah. enough. And I looked at him and I smiled and went, Damn it. It's that esprit d'escalier thing. You were like, you had all of these things, these comebacks prepared for the next time some fecker told you to smile, you know, but then it's oh, gone. That's right. um, Ruth, <laughs> did it transform you or... Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I had Charlie when I was 25. So that like still, I'm like, God, I was so young. And Charlie's been probably the biggest motivator in my life to get over the voices in my head that says, mm. you know, don't do... And there's plenty of those voices still waiting. But um, when you have a child, you're like, okay, what do I need to do now to keep everything mm. going? And actually, I was just saying earlier how, you know, you worry about the baby because of each day and are they okay? And as they get older, that concern does not get less because he's becoming his own person. He's yeah. his own private world and he's entitled to that. And you're like, I hope his private world is okay. I hope you haven't, like... Fecked it up, yeah. <laughs> you know. But yeah, you, you know, going into secondary school will be the next thing. And mm. that, I mean, I have to say, it's a big... I do feel quite anxious about it. Michael, one of the things that I, yeah, the youth have spoken before is about, you know, having been other people. Yeah. To me, you know, this sort of motherhood bonds and all that sort yeah. of stuff is, is part of that. Well, heaven is other people. You're talking to the two women about the children. Yeah. I, I have two children. Yeah. One is a boy of 44. Mm-hmm. He's grown up. <laughs> You'd hope so. And the other's uh, the other's a girl child of twenty-four, and they to me would be heaven. Yeah. In other words, you get caught in a relationship, and you suddenly realise I can't get out of this, and it's fear small, and I'm going to be stuck with this, and it really helped me be a little bit less selfish. Yeah. The relationship, the love relationship, was wonderful, but it was a give and take. Whereas in the initial space with the baby, it was just take. Yeah. And I was given. And, like, I found I had to give up cigarettes. Like, I'd smoked for 40 years because you just couldn't sit there smoking a cigarette. And there was one stage, remember, the little baby, 
started to go for the matchboxer. And I realised that even at that age, she's learned mm. how to do this. And she wants to light the thing the way I light it. And I thought, fuck it, I have to give up this. So, you know, almost the commitment that comes because you have no choice can lead you places that you don't expect to go. And I don't believe there's anything outside this universe, this kind of sentimental stuff. I believe we're here and we're here now. And once we start dealing with other people, we release ourselves from self-obsession. And that's heaven. That really is heaven. Well, I mean, I think um, as you get older, you realise that all the things when you look back and you, and you remember, it's your connections mm. to other people. It uh, is, yeah, you know. yeah. I'm the grandfather in one sense here, but I feel the older you get, the more you can cope with your mistakes. When you asked about, do you regret something? And somebody would say, no, no, I don't really regret doing that. I find the older you get, the more you say, yeah, I do regret that a bit. Because you begin to see that an awful lot of things you did in life were mistakes. Yeah. And actually owning up to them becomes okay. It becomes almost a huge liberation. I fucked up a lot of things, <laughs> really and truly. You know what I mean? Even in parenting, even in yeah. being a husband, anything. I just was so bad, right? So that's a kind of a great liberation I find in life. The one elephant in the room for me, because I do feel there's a wonderful way. If I've, as I say, I have a son in Fermanagh who's a wonderful mm. sculptor. I have a daughter up in Donegal who's a beautiful surfer. But the, I see the wave of freedom that young people are getting. The, the wave that says we are a republic and everybody is equal and there's going to be no messing around with that. Okay, that's a really clear idea. But the one elephant in the room for me is still class. Mm. There is a class distinction in this country that divides every town. I was born in Farnham Road in Cavan. But my father was a very, very poor man from Dublin. And he was terrified if anybody in Cavan ever knew where he came from. He was terrified because he knew it would destroy him socially. And there's always a Farnham Road in every town. And there's always there's a place in Cavan called the Half Acre, where the ordinary poor people live. Mm. And there's a half acre in every town, from Castle Bar down to Cork, or Kerry, Cahersavine, anywhere. And it'll have a name. And that's a fierce thing in Irish society. And I think sometimes it's underneath, it's deep underneath all our ailments. The little middle classes who got the houses with the roofs in the late 18th century and who made money selling Indian meal to the famine, to the million who died, they have a lot of worries Mm. that they'd ever be dragged down. And when they put people away in Magdalens and they put them away in well, and it's a harder one to talk about in some ways. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's, it's just there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're, yeah. we're creating it again now that people can't access third level education. You know, yeah. my generation, I think, you know, our, our generation here, most of us managed to get into college on a grant. And that's gone now. And yeah. that means that people from the working classes can no longer, you know, so they don't have the option to go like a lot of us did and mingle with people doing our arts degrees yeah. and mingle with yeah. people who had artistic drives and motivations mm-hmm. and find that support network to say, look, you can take a risk. Yes, well, it's, a, it's an ever-evolving conundrum Yes, uh, to be our best selves. Ruth. Yes. Speaking of your best self, you're going to finish up for us with another song. Do you want to tell us about it? A song called The Good. Mm. And it is basically like a love story that happens in, in a dream and then a dream is a dream. It is not real. (laughs) (laughs) You ran away with me today As far as we could 
from the shade We met at the corner of joy And being understood So we took the good with the good With the good with the good We filled up the bellies of our livelihood by the place where we both had been uncertain and unseen and smiled at the worth of those steep learning curves oh we'll take the good with the good with the good with the good and we'll fill up the world with each of our Thank you all very much. That uh, brings us to the end of this episode of uh, Pantophocracy. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, my producer, Helen Shaw, and of course, all of our guests here, Ruth, Ruth and Michael and Amy Conroy and uh, Ronan and Jessica. Thank you all so much. And uh, thank you all, uh, our little audience here, for being with us. And you can catch up on all episodes of Pantophocracy on uh, pantophocracy.ie. Thank you. Thank you.